Now, I have a really important question to ask you before we kind of get started today, which is how many of you like really like puzzles? Okay. All right. Now, there are several groups. I told Brett I was going to teach him something controversial today, and so I thought that, maybe that might freak him out if I started off with a question that was really intense, but it's not. I just want to know if you like puzzles or not. Um, and so, group one puzzle people, you are like, have like a puzzle. Does anybody have like a puzzle strategy? Like you're like, you like, you pause and you go, listen, everybody, I just want to let you know I'm starting a puzzle right now, okay? So I need like the next three hours of uninterrupted work, okay? Um, and it's like a recreation, it's like a fun time for you to do a puzzle. Now I already see some like vacant stares because the most of you are like me and that a puzzle is not something you like set out to do, right? So if you're a puzzle, like a strategic puzzle person, you're like, all right, I got to, I'm going to do the border first, I'm going to organize by color, I'm going to get it all divvied out, and that process takes like an hour in and of itself depending on how big the puzzle is. But if you're like me, and that's the way my, my wife's family is like that, they'll just like launch into a puzzle and it's like a thing. They just do a puzzle. And I never had seen that before in my entire life. People just being like, I'm just going to do a puzzle. My family was like, hey, it's the holidays. We're all going to get together. Let's start a puzzle right now in December. We'll finish it sometime in March. Um, and it's going to sit on our table and we'll kind of piece stuff together. And like, you'll go up and like, oh, I got a piece. And that like gives you a boost to be like, all right, I'm going to try to get four more pieces. And after an hour, you're like, oh, let's just take a break and we'll come back to it next week and keep working on it. Um, so everybody has their strategies, everybody has their viewpoints on that. I, I, for one, am mixed about puzzles. I like the challenge of it, but um, I think the interesting thing about puzzles is there's some people that are, like, freaky good at puzzles, They're like, and it's because of a system. Have any of you that, that are really to puzzles ever flipped the puzzle over and done it with just the cardboard gray side before? What's even the point of that? I'm like, what's the, there's no appeal to that at all, right? And why do I ask you about that? It really doesn't have anything to do with what we're going to talk about today. That's, I'm kidding. It does. All right. Here's what I mean. There's different strategies. There's different ideas. We're all working towards the same goal. I mean, kind of approach it differently. And either strategy is good or bad, right? In the end, the puzzle's going to get done, whether it gets done in six months or whether it gets done in the next hour. Um, we're all working towards that. And I, and I feel like as a church, that's kind of where we're at in like our whole church community. We have this desire, this finished picture this ideal goal. And sometimes our route to get there is the same focus, but it's a little bit different. And so today what I want to do is just kind of examine a few things about the church as we kind of move forward into this next season. Fall is starting up. It's a good time to conclude and refresh and think about where we're headed. So before we do that, I just want to go over kind of what I've talked about in the last um, four, this is my fourth teaching this summer, so my first three. Um, and I, part one was talking about church it's a vibrant, Holy Spirit-led, diverse, philanthropic community. It cares about the people. They care about each other. It's Holy Spirit-led. It's diverse. Um, and that was Acts 2.42. And then part two, we talked about the church as a place of ministry where believers care and love each other through direct, direct action and display of love. That was the church as a ministry, ministering to each other. And then part three, which was last, we talked about the church as a belonging community where confession drives us to forgiveness, authenticity, and restoration. Today, what I want to talk about it's examined two different extremes of practice in the church as it pertains to establishment and bringing in God's kingdom. If you were with us through the Gospel of Matthew, you know that the kingdom of God is essentially Jesus' main focus of the Gospels. And the kingdom of God means Jesus' rule and reign on the earth. And there's a future kingdom we experience in Revelation 21 when God sets forth the world, repairs it, puts it back together, and reestablishes his reign. And there's also the kingdom of God that's happening right now as believers follow Jesus, love their neighbor, engage in the world. That's all part of it. 
But before we get there, let's talk about Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. So the book of Revelation, this revealing apocalyptic literature written to seven churches in Asia Minor, and it introduces each one of these churches. And each church has good things that are going on, and it has difficult things that are going on, some more than others. Some get a lot of condemnation. Some get a lot of com- commend- commend- commending? Commending? Commendation? Commendation. Com- yeah, I can't. I lost it. All right. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the image that John sets up in the first part of Revelation, seven different lampstands, the the number seven being significant revelation. We don't have time to go into that at all. Just read Daniel and you'll figure it all out. Uh, Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So the first thing Jesus does is he commends this church. And I think it's a message that we can all hear today and apply to our own life. He says, listen, I want to tell you what you guys are doing great at. You're toiling, you're working hard, you're enduring patiently, And I think it's important to kind of set up and understand just a little bit about Ephesus as a church. Ephesus was this major port city. It was a major hub. It was home to the Temple of Artemis, or Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so it's kind of a city caught in a weird mix of idolatry that's both like, I worship the government and I worship like my own pleasures and my own flesh. Ephesians exists within that, or Ephesus exists within that. And so it's a dynamic city. It's an important city. It's literally the first city you would have hit on this different this route around Asia Minor to hit these different churches. So it's written in kind of geographical order. And so their ability to endure, endure through tribulation, their ability to push through the difficulties of life as a community, and how they can't bear with those who are evil. They've seen the evil in the world. They've seen the idolatry of the world, and they can't stand it. But they've tested those who call themselves apostles. If you've read through... Much of the New Testament, Paul writes to Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. He also writes to Ephesus in 1 Timothy. He also writes to Ephesus in Titus. Um, and he's, and he, a lot of what he talks about in those passages is how to deal with correct teaching, how to understand correct theology, how to apply that to the church community. And so Jesus commends them. He says, you've looked at apostles who claim to be teachers, and you found them to be false. They're enduring patiently. They're working through the difficulties of life and challenges of being in an oppressive city and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. You're still vibrant. You're still excited. You're still enthusiastic about me. You're still enthusiastic about the gospel. And then his conversation pivots. And this is sort of like when somebody tells you you're really good at something. Like, hey, listen, you did a great job, by the way. I just want to tell you, like, that sermon, it was great, like it was wonderful. I really felt like the spirit was moving, but you could have done this a little bit better. You know when that happens and you're like, okay, well you just basically disregarded everything you said before that was just to kind of make you feel okay about the fact that you're about to like just totally deflate me in front of everybody. That's not the point of this. I think what he's trying to say is contrast that with some issues that are going on within the church. And so in Revelation chapter, or chapter 2 verse 4 he says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned 
the love you had at first, or some of your translations may say your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the words of the Nicolaitans, which were like an idolatrous cult focused on their own pleasures, which I also hate. The works that they are doing. He knows it's focused on the works. I think it's important to recognize. He's not talking about the people that are the Nicolaitans. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he starts by saying, hey, listen, church, I want to tell you guys, you're doing a great job. You're working hard. You're enduring through a difficult season. You're experiencing this oppressive both sides. You're being pulled in two different directions towards idolatry, towards government or idolatry, towards your own pleasures. And that you've, you've, you've examined false teachers. You've followed what Paul has asked you to do. And, and here you are. But the one thing I have against you is this. You've forgotten your first love. And I, and I want us just to kind of capture that transition because I think that's a heavy, heavy, heavy condemnation. Think about that in terms of your marriage. Okay, or the person, someone you love in your life, saying to you, hey, you know what, you're doing a really great job. I know you work really hard, but you don't love me. And the weight of that being like, oh my. Well, then what does the other stuff even matter then, if that's the case? And I think the heaviness of it is to remind us that what we focus on the church sometimes, on two different extremes, is always, if we're on an extreme, we're kind of only touching a few important parts of what Jesus has called us to do. But Jesus has asked us to united front together in following Jesus. Now, I want to pause for a second because I'm going to paint two different extremes, all right? And the purpose of painting extremes is to understand how two different thought processes, if they're fully immersed in themselves, how they tend to focus and communicate. And I want to preface it by saying this. This is not about politics, but it is about politics, okay? In the sense of, and I'm not talking about conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. That's not what I'm talking about. Politics is all about power. It's all about how power is directed. In fact, the Greek term for politics comes from power. It means power, how you direct it. So if a party has political power, it means they have the power to direct their power, okay? And so you're going to hear, at one point, me talk about conservative, traditional, and liberal, and progressive, okay? That does not pertain to our political environment here in the U.S. It has to do with a thought process. So it's important to understand that because I'm not trying to go one is worse than the other or good or bad. Does that make sense? So I want to preface it by that way before you're like, if you're like a nifty tech person, you can like chop up my YouTube video and be like, oh, this is where he says this and now I've got him captured and now he's never going to teach again in the church. That's fine. I'm not worried about that, okay? What I do want to say is this. This is an important conversation because sometimes when we hear words that are kind of visceral, or that um, the political environment has really charged rhetorically, made it really like intense, we can tune out any sort of reasonable judgment about objectively approaching different ideas, right? And, and, that's, and to be honest with you, our media landscape has done that on purpose. They want to stir up a visceral response because that drives you to watch videos and click on stuff. But that's not what our purpose is today. Instead, we want to examine the kingdom of God and two different practices or two different actions that accompany that. So let's talk about one. I want to define a couple terms really quick. One is this uh, idea of orthodoxy. 
Orthodoxy means correct belief, correct belief ritualism and the practice of rituals. Essentially is what you believe and correct belief in something. And there's another term, orthopraxy. And here's what orthopraxy means. Orthopraxy means correct conduct, both ethical and liturgical. Think about it like this. Orthodoxy is what you believe. Orthopraxy is what you do. Does that make sense? And some of you are already ahead of me. You're like, well, we kind of need both. Yeah, absolutely. But I find that in the church, or I would argue in the church, we gravitate towards one extreme. We either gravitate and sink into orthodoxy and go down the black hole of orthodoxy, or we dig into orthopraxy. We say, you know, orthodoxy really isn't that important. It's actually more of what you do and how you love people. And this I would go, it's not really about that kind of like mushy, gushy, like loving, caring for people. It's more about believing in the gospel. All right? So, Let's talk about these two different ideas, and we're going to frame them like this. On the one side, we have social change as the kingdom of God perspective. Our whole lens about this is how does the church bring about the kingdom of God? And so the two different methodologies is one, there's the social change slash justice-oriented extreme of the church. They say this, we usher in the kingdom of God through social change and activism. Good deeds done by good people, Christian or not, in the public sector for the, quote, common good. Okay, everybody is down with when somebody's like, when old lady's walking across the street and she's got her groceries, I'm going to jump in and help that person out because the kingdom of God is all about that. Okay? Kingdom work emphasized in Jesus' gospel action mean the needs of serving and spending copious amounts of time with marginalized people. Okay? That's what that extreme would kind of camp out and live in that reality. And the other side, which is transformational, would say, God ushers in his kingdom work through redemptive moments. And if that sounds vague, it's kind of supposed to. It's kind of like, I don't know, it just kind of, kingdom of God just kind of happens as you like do stuff. I don't know. God's redemptive rule and power at work in the world through preaching of the gospel. Kingdom work is emphasized in Jesus' death on the cross to redeem humanity. Not to change the world, but the world will be changed as people get saved. Now you're already looking at this and you're going, I don't know which one is, I feel like I, I don't know. Okay, that's on purpose. Next slide would be a little bit more direct in the conversation as far as our cultural moment. Uh, orthopraxy for social change is the most important part of the Christian life. Say orthopraxy, that's what you do is the most important part of the Christian life. And it places a high emphasis on politics to create kingdom change. We have to change the political dynamic and get our candidate into office, and then the kingdom of God can be ushered in through that means. Generally, this group leans a little left of center in American politics. Now, the transformational approach would be more traditional, maybe. Orthodoxy is the most important part of the Christian life. It doesn't matter what you do if you don't believe the correct stuff. Places a high emphasis on politics to create kingdom change, and generally this group leans a little right of center in American politics. This side over here, like, eats organic, local, all right? It's like weirdly obsessed with essential oils, all right? Uh, And believes that politics are how you change stuff. And this side over here uh, eats local and organic, is weirdly obsessed with essential oils, <laughs> and believes that politics are the way that you bring about the kingdom of God. They're not that different. Really, we look at it as a spectrum. Really, it's a circle. Both sides want total control, right? And so, in this conversation about these two different extremes, we could summarize it by maybe giving a quote of what, how someone from this perspective would believe. If someone's in the social change and justice category, they would say something like this. We went on a mission trip to Africa. We built orphanages, hospitals, and schools. It was awesome. We didn't need to preach the gospel or talk about Jesus at all. We just served people. You're like, okay. 
All right, I come feel okay with that. The other side says this. We went on a mission trip and spoke at a number of churches about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we had an altar call and a thousand people accepted Jesus. We didn't really do any significant works. We just kind of preached. And so in its most intense form, this side rejects historic Christian doctrine that have sustained the church from centuries on the far end of the extreme. Okay, there's a lot of people that believe those doctrines, but on the far end of the extreme, this is what you have at its most intense form. In attempting to survive the modern scientific age, it became identical to modern secular liberalism. And it started to press more into secular beliefs. Find your truth. Be the best version of yourself. Self-help doctrine. As the uncertainty of God's nature and ways, the world's morals were valued more and became the pseudo-biblical moral standard. This is where like, we take a verse that goes like, seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. Remember a few years ago, during a bunch, uh, like a several of these um, protests that happened throughout the country, people took that verse and they like, chopped off the end, right? They were like, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God, okay? All right? And the other side would take this. At its worst form, this side would say it creates an impossibly high moral standard that is at most almost pharisaical in nature. It accepts a form of Christian nationalism where traditional American culture and biblical ethics are one and the same and built on one another. It rejects any form of cultural innovation, thought, or concept because it's not directly Christian. It's strongly anti-intellectual, it's anti-elitist. It's really, disturbing, really distrusting of higher education, scholarship, and science. It's pro to legalism and self-righteousness. And it's an overemphasis on secular politics to accomplish kingdom work. This I would say, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God, all right? And they would kind of gravitate towards one of those extremes. And the reality is, it's kind of both. Now, anytime we paint an extreme, the conversation always becomes like this. The... The um, social change says orthopraxy is more important than orthodoxy. The other side says, no, orthodoxy is more important than orthopraxy. Okay? And this is a common debate. How do we approach this? Now, the temptation would be, well, it's just like the Goldilocks and the three bears. We just got to find that middle ground, that like sweet spot where we kind of like a little bit of this and we like a little bit of that and everything's okay and everything's kind of lukewarm. The problem is lukewarm is pretty much useless. That's why I hate that fairy tale. I'm like, I don't really want like a coffee that's like not too hot but not too cold. I want an iced coffee or I want a hot coffee. If it's middle, I'm like, this is useless. Just dump it out, okay? I'm not going to microwave it. That's weird, okay? And so, no, if you're a parent, you know you microwave your coffee all the time. Um, Like, I just made that coffee, but now it's cold. What happened? Um, So we have to, it's, and Tim Keller wrote an interesting article about this where he said, if we're looking to try to find the middle ground, we're actually going to end up in a weird spot because how are we supposed to approach a middle ground between these two extremes? And he says this in a quote about finding the middle ground. At the most basic level, finding the middle ground is bad advice. Should we hold fewer historic Orthodox Protestant doctrines than conservatives but not as few as mainline liberals? Should we be a little concerned for racial and economic justice but not too much? Do we want to only do a moderate critique of idols and power structures in our culture? Do we want to be moderately committed to the authority of the Bible? Will our church members be either all centrist or on political issues or apolitical? So I, I love this because this was a tension I was experiencing. Like, I can't be like, well, the Bible is really important, so I want that. 
but then I can't be like, that shouldn't come at the cost of something else over here. In a political environment, finding that moderate middle ground is really important, right, in the secular world. In the church, it doesn't quite work as well. And so the question is, what do we do with that? If if the middle ground is difficult to strike, we have to accept the fact that as a church for kingdom mission, we're actually called to embark on a whole different reality that isn't, isn't between two poles, but is instead a whole different establishment around following Jesus. The purpose of that being renewal in the church. What does the renewed church look like in this next season? So we're going to go back to Revelation, but first we're going to take a couple pit stops. Go to John seventeen thirteen. John 17, 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may be fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and, they, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. And let's skip down to verse 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says right there, listen, the Bible is really, really, really important. How we look at the Bible, how we understand scripture, how we understand orthodoxy, it is valuable and needed. It has to shape our reality. And now go to 1 Corinthians 13, which you already know because you have it printed on a pillow or something like that in your room or you heard it at a wedding, so it's, you're gonna, it's all right. He says this in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul I love this verse because I think we read it. We read it the first time. We love the like, oh, just like love is such a great thing. Isn't it so awesome? Like, yeah, love is so great. We all love love. We all love to be loved. But the first part is like so important. And it's talking about this tension that we experience. 13 verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I'm a charismatic person that speaks really well, but I don't have love. It's just bang, 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 bang. You can't even hear anything. It's a, it's a ridiculous noise. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have not faith, and I have all the faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver my body up to be burnt, but have not love, I gain nothing. Just think about the tone of that. If I sacrifice myself to the fire for the glory of God, but I don't have love in my action, that means nothing. Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Listen to this, verse eight. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be known fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, 
love, abide these things, but the greatest of these is love. And the reason why I chose those two verses is I feel like when we talk about this idea, again, we can get pulled to two extremes because we think that it's all about how we voted politically. That the conversation goes, well, you know, you really can't be pro-racial justice and be pro-life. They're two different ends of the political extreme. And that's what our society tells us. But as a church, we have to ask ourselves, what does justice mean? When we approach that, we engage with it, what does it look for us to engage with that? And how do we engage with the concept, like an idea of abortion, right? We see the idea of Roe versus Wade being overturned and the church rejoices in that. But what we don't understand is that that's not, that wasn't the end goal of the church, right? It was like Jesus was like, hey, overturn that and you guys are really crushing it. It's important. We all believe the right to, that the life of an unborn child matters and that abortion is morally wrong. But we also need to be willing to step into the conversation when there's a mother who is struggling with the birth of a child born out of wedlock, who has put her, put, maybe put themselves in that situation. The church is not called to go, well, that was your choice. You knew the consequences of that, so figure it out. The church is instead supposed to provide an avenue to serve and minister to individuals who are in that place and step up their goal towards serving individuals who have made that choice. We make wrong choices all the time that are just as condemnable in the eyes of the world as something like that is in the church. And we all want love and forgiveness when that happens. So why do we choose to not extend it to a certain group because politically it's not advantageous to do so? That's a conversation we have to have within ourselves to go, what is our role in this society? We have to let the political rhetoric die down and ask ourselves as a church, what are we supposed to do? This doesn't mean don't engage in politics. Bonhoeffer engaged in politics. It's not wrong to engage with that. But it is to ask yourself, how do we do that? And is that the end goal? Getting our candidate into the Senate position or getting our candidate into the White House? Is that going to change everything? Probably not. But yet we still invest a whole lot of emotion and so much so that people would argue that politics in and of itself is its own religion at this point. And Christianity is a sub-tier in one of those. And by the way, both political ideas believe that Jesus is a part of them. So the church has to ask themselves, how do we engage in this world now? So back to our verse in Romans. This conversation, what does this first love thing mean? Does it mean loving Jesus and elevating him? Or does it mean loving the people in the church and loving people around you? It means both. You can't have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. You can't have orthopraxy without orthodoxy. They are intertwined. And I know you've heard me talk about this a lot from the stage. And the reason is I think it's really important that church find its renewal phase, not deciding what are we going to take and pick and choose from each extreme, but establishing its own narrative of how it wants to pursue loving people in this time in our culture. We can't fall into the extreme. Instead, we have to disregard the extreme and move into our own agenda. And, and here, as we close, I want to give four things that aspects of church renewal that we can partake in and serve within as a church. Number one, we need to understand to seek a whole new ethic of church renewal rather than polarization or the middle ground. The church can't become this vanilla, lukewarm, like, ah, like a little bit of cold, a little bit of hot, we're fine. No, it needs to establish a whole new rhythm of renewal. How do we engage with this? And that starts by asking ourselves, how are we going to engage with topics that exist in the world? And how are we going to approach them? What does the Bible say about them? How are we going to conduct ourselves? How do we communicate those things? 
Two, we need to recognize that our love for Jesus is inseparable from our love towards people and vice versa. Our greatest way to express love and our greatest way to experience love comes from people. All right? We have to encourage those in our community to press into deeper desires of Christ's community. We need to examine our role in engaging with hurting, broken, and impoverished and transient people. So it's, it's interesting running into to people and talking about like, you know, why they moved to Central Oregon. And I have a, lot of, a lot of my friends moved over from the valley, like we moved over from the valley, and they go, there's just so many homeless people in the valley. And they were like, Redmond, there's just not a lot of homeless people, and that's why I moved here. And I've always thought about that as like, that's true, very true. But the conversation goes, but did you move here so you could get away from people that are marginalized? Is that why you came here? Because the Bible would say, what are we going to do to serve people? How are we going to engage with that reality? That exists. And sometimes it's because of choices that people have made. That doesn't mean they're, they're not worthy of being served. That's such an important conversation. So we have to also examine unhealthy leadership structures that exist in our society. Is there a weird power dynamic that exists where certain people have the voice and some don't? And if they don't have a voice and that's legitimate, does the church step into that and become that person's voice? How do we approach that? Number three, we need to deconstruct and rebuild in community. This is so important. We talked about deconstruction a long time ago with the idea that our culture now, a lot of people had a bad experience with church or they grew up in the church and then they just tore the whole thing down and said, no, I'm done with the transformational approach. I'm going strictly into the left part of the the spectrum. I want to live there because it's easier. It makes more sense. I don't have to believe as much stuff. I can just love people and that's all I need to do. Great. Problem is they leave community to do that. They don't feel comfortable working through their issues with the church in the church community. So the question is, we can deconstruct, but can we instead deconstruct together and then step into renewal as a family and work for that together, find that true meaning of the church together? We have to engage and participate in the process of rebuilding church so it can effectively engage with kingdom work um, my wife and I just uh, bought a membership to Discovery Plus. Well, weird caveat. I know, hold on, relevance is coming. Trust me. By the way, if you need Discovery Plus, we can give you our password. Just kidding. If you have it, though, we would love it. Um, <laughs> the uh, Discovery Plus has these, it's just, it's just HGTV. Remember when, like, Food Network was, like, actually cooked on Food Network, and now it's all just reality shows, like, all the time? Anyway, uh, HGTV has these great shows about, like, remodeling houses, like, that's all it is. Just like, we bought this house, and then it's like, we're going to remodel it. Everything's going wrong with it, and what have you. And then it's all, and it turns out fine in the end. Everything's okay, and they make, like, a ton of money anyway. And by the way, HGTV pays them a lot of money anyway. It's unimportant, okay? The idea of it is, but I love it because it's such a great picture of what the church is in right now, right? The church is kind of haggard. It's kind of been through some difficult times. It's banged up. And so they come in, they go, wow, shag carpeting everywhere. <laughs> and like... Is that asbestos in the ceiling? That is asbestos in the ceiling, okay? And I've seen the mess of the Yoma has. I know this isn't a good thing. So we're like, how do we deal with that? And I, I, it's interesting because they, they basically, they don't tear down the whole house. They don't go, oh, this is that. Let's just blow it all up. Let's just destroy it. And we'll start over. That would be an interesting HGTV series. Like, can I explode this house? That's what it would be called, you know? So they just go, should I blow it up? Blow it up or not? That's what it would be called. That'd be a good one. I would watch that show. Just like, okay, if it's not good, we're just going to blow it up, all right? But that's what we all do with the church. They go, just tear the whole thing down, get rid of it, throw in the trash. And then it's like, well, what do I do now? I've got nothing left. Yeah, that's a problem because there's foundations that are needed to build back that church, that building. So they strip it down to the studs. 
And they're like, oh, there's lead paint in the kitchen. We've got to get rid of that. There's asbestos in the ceiling. We've got to get rid of that. It's all these toxic things that exist that at one time were like, yeah, it doesn't catch on fire. This is good. Uh, I, I cringe at what our stuff's going to be someday. You know, it's going to be like, yeah, you know, all of that organic food is actually way worse for it than the super processed McDonald's food. Boy, would that be like a mind-blowing thing. We've been <laughs> miserable for the last, like, 20 years. We could have been eating McDonald's the whole time. Uh, the, but the concept of being like, okay, we, we see there's toxic things, so we have to get rid of that. That doesn't work anymore. We have to remove that. But the house itself has a lot of character. The house itself has a good foundation. We can build on this. We can, we can build it back. We can renew it. We can, we can make it more functional. We can make it more healthy. We can reestablish it. And I just love it because the people come around the corner. Every show is the same. It's hilarious. They come around the corner and it's like they turn to look at the house and like, here's your new house. And they're like, oh! And then it cuts to commercial like right then. And you're like, are they happy? Are they sad? I don't know. And they come back and they're just, their, their perspective is just, I never thought this could happen. I never thought this building could look like this. And I think the church is in a similar spot. I never thought the church could be this vibrant, gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving community that loves people in the city so well. I never thought it could happen. But it does, and it's amazing. And there's a reason why we, we gravitate towards that, because it's so cool to see something torn down and rebuilt. And then um, last, I think this is the last one. Is this the last one? Last point? Why did I make that point? Yeah, deconstruct and rebuilt in community. The renewed church, Tim Keller says this as well, must be completely orthodox in his, in his historic doctrine and yet contemporary, right? It's the reason why we have cool hanging plants on the wall. It's just contemporary. It's not like, it's like, not like Jesus was like, thou shalt have hanging plants you bought from Amazon. We like them. They're good. That's fine. But they're not like, this isn't why we do church. And they're healthy also, which is awesome. So mine are dying. So four recognize that true kingdom work does not come strictly through political action. Establishing a progressive, equality-based, utopian society is not the solution. A return to a Christian nation, or if the goal is to make this nation exclusively Christian, is the goal, that is not the end goal. can't be. Because as long as you have people in power, there's going to be a distorted perspective of reality. Imperfect people will do imperfect things. So we recognize that the true kingdom work, the true gospel kingdom work, building God's kingdom does not come strictly through political action. I say strictly through because there's definitely avenues where you can make somebody's life better through politic, political process, but doesn't fix the problems that are deeply inside of us. And so as we conclude talking about the church and its community, I really wanted us to just kind of pick through how, what do we do in this time? How do we relate? What does the church exist in? And I know it's a big concept. That's why it was hard to figure out like concrete things we can do tomorrow as a church. But I do think one of the big things we can do is not give up on it. Not give up on the church. And I, and I feel as though sometimes we treat the church like it's, our, like it's a restaurant that we go to. And it's like, I come in and I, serve, I, get, sir, I, serve, I get served, service, I go to a service. And then I leave and I go, ah, preaching was okay. Not like it used to be. Remember those old people used to teach there? That was great. Music's kind of, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. And we give ourselves any excuse to leave and go somewhere else. And then you find that that just happens everywhere you go. 
ah, oh, that church was good. Ah, oh, but it didn't have this. I liked the hanging plants at Redeemer. I didn't like how the other church didn't have any windows. Okay, ah, I like windows. I like natural lights. So I'm going to go to this church. If that's the process of like why we're choosing churches, we really kind of like totally missed it, right? There's even Yelp reviews for churches. Yikes! Can't imagine what that's like. Can you imagine what that's like? Oh my gosh, a Google review for a church. Nobody's happy, I bet, on that thing. Five-star church, you know? But the question is for us, like, how do we engage in a society that tries to draw us into the polarization, tries to draw us into one side or the other? We go, we're not going to accept the spectrum as anywhere we need to fall at all. Instead, we want to step into a whole new reality, a whole new process of renewal, a whole new process of healing. There is no perfect church. It's imperfect. We're a bunch of weirdos. I mean, weird people you're going to talk to at the church. That's why the church exists, to be honest with you, so you can interact with people that are maybe a little bit different from you. If the church looks the same, talks the same, it's like more of a cult than it is a church. There should be diverse perspectives. There should be diverse realities. Socioeconomically, racially, all those things are great for the church. They're not downfalls of it. So how do we engage? What do we do with that? I think that's up for us to go from here and think about What does it look like for us tomorrow when we engage in our society as a church? And also accept the fact that as people who are here and members of the church, that sometimes that means you are taking the lead in and of yourself to pursue something in the community. If you need the church to put its like stamp of approval on it, that's not the goal. The goal is the church is not like, hey, listen, we're gonna we're gonna die on the hill that you want to die on as a church. We're not gonna do that. But if you see a need in the community, there's people that are broken. Like, I really want to go to the skate, hypothetically, I want to go to the skate park and serve pizza to these kids that are skateboarding at the park from 9 to 4 o'clock, which they should be in school while they're at the skate park. So they go there, and I'm going to take pizza down there to love them. Will the church jump on that train with me? And we go, we love it. It's great. We'll support you. We'll financially give to you, but we're not going to be like pizza at the skate park, okay? If you want to do that, do it. If you want to love people in your community, your neighbor, do it. If you want to care for your coworkers going through a hard time, do it. Don't wait for the church to like prop you up to go and do it. You are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are followers of Jesus. God has empowered you and created you to exist with a unique purpose, and that purpose is to engage in the world that you are placed in. That's the church. And we do that, and we approach that with correct gospel teaching. We know that Jesus is real. We know the cross is real. We know the resurrection is important. We value that, and it's essential to our belief. But the gospel is also 80% Jesus hanging out with people. So we can't disregard that. It's all about the gospel. Yes, but the gospel is Jesus' whole life and message. It's not just Matthew 26 through 28. It's 25 all the way back to chapter 1 of what Jesus did. The church will embrace and engage that reality, we might be a part of something really, really, really cool, really healthy and really dynamic. And that's the hope. That's the prayer for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We know, God, that culture is nuts. There's so much going on. There's so much vitriol and anger and hurt and hyper-accountability. There's unique experiences. There's hurt people. There's people that think they don't need any help. There's people that are dying from what the culture is placing upon them. 
We look at your church, Jesus, and we see it as this beautiful thing, this beautiful bride. And Lord, we want to engage with that. We want to press into not landing on one of these two extremes, but instead living in a whole new reality that only the church really gets to be invited to participate in. We can say that what we do transcends the polarization that exists in our culture and instead dives into a deep, deep love for each other, for you, for our community, so that we can in turn, Lord, bring about your kingdom. Rejoice in the fact that someday, Lord, you are going to make this all right. You're going to put back together what was broken. You're going to complete the puzzle. We know that. And we ask, Jesus, that you would give us each, each person in this room, a chance this week to put a piece of that puzzle into place. To bring about a little bit of the kingdom. To press into you. To know you deeper. To love our neighbors. And that in that, Jesus, you would be glorified. Help us. Have mercy on us. Encourage us. Lead us into this next season with hope, with love, with truth. Maybe seek justice. We love mercy. We walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.